So what is the book of Revelation about? Hopefully by now you can answer that question a little better. And I hope that your answer is and will be that the book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. From chapters 1 to 22, Revelation seeks to show us the connection between Jesus and the future. This book is driving us toward the culmination of God's plan, which is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he gains victory over sin and death and the devil, and one day returns to make everything new and to bring us back to the Garden of Eden. It's a massive reset, and Jesus says, this world belongs to me, and I'm reclaiming it. It sounds like this in Revelation 21, verses three and four. Read this aloud with me together. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. <laughs> wow. That's where this book is going to lead us, to that moment. It's a glorious moment. It's in the future. And when I think about that, I find it very interesting and instructive that the Holy Spirit and the words of Jesus could have jumped right to everything that's in the future. It is, after all, the revelation of Jesus Christ. They could have jumped right into all of the future-oriented material, but instead, the book of Revelation leads in chapters two and three with churches. Churches. In different cities and with different strengths and with different weaknesses. The book of Revelation starts talking about the future by first talking about Churches, local churches with people in them that aren't perfect. Why? Here's why. Because the church collectively and churches individually are essential to the plan of God. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. The only way from Christ to heaven and the battles against sin is through the church. And not just one church, but seven. So why is that important? Because we need to be reminded that Sunday after Sunday, what happens right here, right now, is not only important, it's linked to the overall plan of Jesus to reclaim the world. The plan of God involves every church 
in every city that is preaching the gospel and striving to be faithful. Sunday doesn't just matter in our church, it matters in all the churches that you drove by to come to this church who are faithfully heralding the good news. It's important to remember there's not just one church, College Park Church in the city of Indianapolis, there's thousands of churches that are doing really good work and we applaud them and celebrate them and say you're part of the bigger connection of what it means for us to be part of the kingdom of God. Please don't grow our church by thinking we're the best church in town. Don't grow our church or invite people because you're against some other church. The Spirit of God uses the church, broken churches, just like ours, in order to advance the gospel. So churches with weaknesses and shortcomings and need for growth, yeah, all that's true, and yet God's plan A is the church. Served the church for 30 years, and sometimes I wonder, God, this was, this was your best plan? <laughs> We're a mess. The only way from Christ to heaven and the battles against sin is through the church. So today we come to the end of the seven letters. Next week we'll move on to more future-oriented material. Pastor Alex Anderson will be unpacking for us Revelation chapter four. I'll be leading our third civil rights vision trip this coming weekend and looking forward to the ways in which the next series of chapters in this book are going to help us. But I've hoped that you've realized as we've walked through these chapters how unbelievably relevant these letters are. There's been Sundays that I know we have sensed, I have sensed an unusual movement of the Spirit of God among us as we've considered these letters carefully. They are relevant to every church, every church in every generation. They're relevant to us. So today we look at three more churches. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The first church, Sardis, is alive and dying. Alive and dying. The fifth letter is written to a church that has the appearance of success and health, but is actually dying. Look at verse one of chapter three. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. We see the vision here of Jesus who's described as the one who has the seven spirits and has the seven stars. It's meant to communicate the control, the knowledge that Jesus has related to this church. In other words, when it comes to Jesus and his relationship with his churches, nothing escapes him. He misses nothing. He sees it all. He knows what's really going on. Now that thought may be important because of the history of the city of Sardis. Apparently there were at least two battles, one in particular for which Sardis became known for not guarding the wall. There was a section of the wall of the city that was 
on the edge of a, a large precipice or a difficult wall of, of rock. And as a result, the city leaders thought that they didn't need to post as many soldiers on that particular section because there's no way someone could climb up the side of this rock and then make it to the wall and then penetrate the city. But a brave soldier, when seeking to overthrow the city of Sardis, found a way to climb up the wall. He led a small band of soldiers over top of that wall, opened the gate, and as a result, the city was conquered. And so the name Sardis became a cultural proverb for trusting in one's strength only to be defeated because of a lack of vigilance. So you could think of it similar to the idea of a Trojan horse. So that idea connected with a battle has symbolism and a meaning to it, or you could think of someone saying, look, we don't want another Chernobyl, do we? And you'd know what they meant by virtue of the name of the city. So the city of Sardis represented something more than just a geographic location. And if that's the context, then it makes the letter even more poignant. It would seem as if Jesus is concerned that this church is not being vigilant. The second half of verse one is blunt. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Often the statement, I know, follows some sort of commendation. But with this church, there is no commendation. His commendation is you have a reputation of being alive, but in fact, you are not. What does this mean? Verse two gives us a clue. It says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It would appear that Jesus, in calling them dead, is speaking in hyperbole. He's meant to shock them. He's he's meant to help them realize what a precarious position they're in, and he commands them in two ways, one, to be watchful, and two, to strengthen what remains. So it appears that this church is guilty of being passive and being weak. Some commentators suggest that they were shirking back from being willing to being identified as a Christian in the world. In other words, from a spiritual perspective, The church was playing dead, or they were faking it. It's interesting, there's no mention here of idolatry or immorality like in previous letters, and that might mean what was happening is they were tending to blend into a particular subsection of their culture, perhaps in what it meant to be Jewish in their society. Perhaps they were reluctant to confess the name Jesus. They were known as religious, but they didn't want to be known as followers of Christ. That may be why the letter ends with the promise of a conqueror's name being, their name, being named before the Father in verse 5. Or if you look at verse 4, why there are certain people who have the privilege of walking with Jesus, or why he mentions their names not being blotted out because to be banned from a synagogue meant that your name was blotted out. In fact, James Hamilton in his commentary suggests that they were alive in that they weren't conspiring with Rome, but they were dead in that they were avoiding persecution by staying close to the Jewish community and not confessing the name of Jesus. 
They were trying to straddle the worlds in which they lived. And so the invitation here then is to remember what you have received. In John's Gospels, this language, remember what you have received, is linked to the message about Jesus' death and his resurrection. It refers to the good news about who Jesus is. So if we have this right, then the church of Sardis is guilty of trying to live in both worlds. They were acting alive, but they were really dying. They had the reputation of being active, but the reality was they had lost not just their first love, they had lost the essence of what it meant for them to really live. So let me invite you to think of a couple applications with me in light of this letter. Some of you may be listening to this sermon today, and while you're in church, you're honestly not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're curious about the book of Revelation, like so many of us are, but you're not yet a Christian, and so you thought, I'm going to come and kind of listen to what this church says or what this book indicates about the future, but you've not yet confessed your Save, not confess your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And my question to you would be, why not make today the day? Others of you may have been raised in a Christian home or you're around Christian people. If you're a child or a teenager or a recent college student or high school student, it may be that you've been raised in the environment with Christians, but you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Next week, we're gonna see a host of people who are gonna follow the Lord in believer's baptism, and my question to you is, why not take that step? You may be a person who's lived in a Christian home your entire life, but you've never really understood what it meant to claim your own faith, for you to be the kind of person who says, Jesus is my savior. Listen to me, you can't live on your parents' coattails. You can't be in the right environment without really understanding what it means to confess Christ as Savior and Lord. And finally, it may be that for some, that there are certain spaces where you've strategically positioned yourself so that people don't know that you're a Christian. I've said this before, but if nobody at work knows that you're a Christian, you might not really be a Christian if nobody knows. And it may be that Jesus is calling you to wake up and to be bold in your witness. Some of you are playing possum with your testimony. God gives you an opportunity, and because you don't want to go there in terms of your the risk, I guess I could say, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you've just gone quiet. And this particular letter invites us to consider what does it look like for us to take a bold and risky step to side with Jesus? For some of us, we did that all the time when we first came to Jesus. We didn't care who knew or what it meant. We were just ready to talk to people about Jesus, but slowly over time, you've taken less and less risk for the name of Christ. And this particular church, this particular letter invites us to consider when was the last time when naming the name of Jesus really cost you something? 
He rebukes the church. Be careful, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dying. The good news is, is if you hear this message today and that resonates within your heart, the invitation is to repent, to turn, to let this next week be the different kind of week, to pray, maybe something like, Lord, give me opportunity to name the name of Jesus with people around me. And then when he provides that opportunity, embrace it. This whole book is meant to encourage us as to where history is headed. And Sardis is warned about playing dead. Next church, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a church for whom there are open doors and Jesus encourages them to hold fast. Philadelphia is a church filled with opportunity. Like Smyrna, the second letter, this church is only commended. What's interesting here is there are no critiques offered. It's a letter about divinely ordained open doors and the command to hold fast as they walk through them. Notice how Jesus is described. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Notice, he has the key of David. We've heard keys before, but in chapter one, it was the keys of death and Hades. Now he has a different kind of key. It's the key of David. What is this about? Well, in Isaiah 22, 22, it's a reference to the opening and the control of the kingdom. The idea is that Jesus not only has the keys of the dark side of God's wrath, but he also has the key of the opening up of paradise and glory to those who would put their trust in Jesus. It's a reference to Jesus' opening and control of the kingdom of God, and this is designed to be the beginning of a very hope-filled text. You can see it in what follows in the passage. He says, no one is able to shut or open the door like him. It means that Jesus has absolute authority. He has the keys. He, that means he's in complete control. He's reminding this church that he's the one who's really orchestrating all of the events of their lives. And that's really important, especially if in the last week you have run up against powerful forces or intimidating people, or if it seems like you look around and you wonder, where exactly is the devil losing? Because it seems like he's winning, 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 winning. And to that, Jesus says, I hold the keys of death and Hades, and I hold the keys of David. Some of you may need to write down somewhere these four words on a sticky note just to remind your soul this week, Jesus holds the keys. He holds the keys. Verse eight goes even further. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Open doors that no one can shut. Throughout the New Testament, an open door introduces an opportunity for ministry and evangelism. So apparently this church was being given divinely ordained opportunities to advance the gospel. But notice this open door, this forward movement isn't going to be easy. Look at what he says. I know that you have but little power. 
and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. They must have been experiencing some kind of opposition from religious people or even from Satan himself. And so what we note here is this concept of open door doesn't mean that open doors come without cost. It's important to consider this. I trust that you know, church, that most open doors are not lush fields that are easy to navigate or plow and plant. The minute a wide door opens for beautiful evangelism, the devil throws everything he's got to try and make that door close or that field really difficult. Sometimes it's, it's easy to confuse an open door with an easy door. Most open doors to the gospel aren't easy. In fact, in a few weeks, October 2nd, October 9th, we're gonna turn our full attention towards global evangelism and what does it mean to reach unreached people groups and I've heard Nate say many, many times and it's helpful for us to be reminded that unreached people are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach, they're expensive to get to and often they don't want Christians there. Open doors don't mean easy doors. In fact, they mean expensive, hard and challenging doors but open doors are exactly what the church is called to walk through. For the last several years, we've dreamed, what do we do to try and meet the needs of people that are within a five-mile radius of our church? Community counseling is one step. You saw last week, family advocacy ministry is another way this could happen. But listen, these are not straightforward open doors. They have lots of risk and lots of pain and lots of tears. But I just want to remind you, tear-filled ministry that's really hard and really difficult is where Christians are supposed to be. Wherever the brokenness of the world is the most significant and the trauma the greatest, that's where God's people can be. Why? Because they know how the story ends. The book of Revelation is meant not just to help you be informed about the future, it's meant to motivate you to go and give your life and shed your tears and give your money and yes, even give your life because the call of Jesus is worth it. Revelation says, go for it, I've got it. Philadelphia is a calling It's a calling to embrace open doors. Notice, Jesus reminds them it's gonna be worth it. Verse 10, persecutors are gonna see how much these Christians, I love this, are loved by Jesus. It's not just that they're gonna, persecutors are gonna learn that they were wrong, it's that these persecutors are gonna learn how much Jesus loves them. Verse 10, it says they will be kept from the hour of trial coming on the whole world. Verse 11, they will be secure in God's house. Verse 12, they will be marked by God's name. They will live in a new city. Verse 12, they'll be identified with Jesus. I mean, all of these things are here in order to strengthen and encourage this church to walk through the open doors that are in front of them. So recently, I've been thinking a lot about open doors and new opportunities. Part of it is coming from the fact that over the last two years, we've had to, I've had to play more defense than I've ever had to play in my life when it comes to church ministry. And I don't mind playing defense, I'm just ready to play offense again. And I think it might be time for us to think not just about how do we get back to normal, normal's gone. (laughs) I think we ought to start looking about around us and seeing what open doors have now been opened 
And how can we advance the gospel in new ways in the next number of years? But I wanna caution you, be ready, because that doesn't mean it's easy. Open doors require holding fast and understanding what the story of Revelation is all about. So Philadelphia is a church where there are open doors and they're invited to hold fast. Finally, the church at Laodicea, a church that is lukewarm and desperate. And when I mean desperate, I don't mean they're feeling desperate. I mean they are desperate, but they don't even know it. Here is a church that's marked with lukewarm spiritual condition. And again, there's parallels between this letter and the letter to the church at Ephesus. Verse 14, and the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He calls himself the amen and the beginning. Remember previously he was the alpha and the omega, now he's the amen and the beginning. So he's not just the first and the last, but he's also the last and the first. Love this. What's more, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. His words are trustworthy. He's the ultimate example of what it means to be faithful. So as we're trying to be faithful, as things get difficult, life gets hard, open doors prove to be costly, it's helpful to be reminded that we're linked to the one who is the conqueror. He was the faithful witness, he is the faithful witness, and therefore we can follow him. I trust that you know that the irreducible minimum of what it means to be a Christian is that you're in love with Jesus and you follow him. So if you need some kind of reset in your life, can I just remind you, keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe you should read the gospels and see how he interacts with people and maybe reread these letters. These are his words to his churches. You may find yourself disillusioned with the church in general, disappointed in Christians and how they behave. And my counsel to you would be, that shouldn't be surprising. From the first century to now, the church is made up of broken people who keep demonstrating how broken they are. And whether it's the early church or the contemporary church, the church isn't perfect. And not only not perfect, she's got a lot to work on. She's got a lot of things that are going to be disappointing. But the one who will never disappoint you is the faithful and true witness, Jesus. Some of us, the problem with our disappointment in the church is we know more about the church than we know about Jesus. We look more at the people or the programs or the things than we are, who is Jesus? What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus calling me to? In verse 15, we see the problem. They are rebuked for being neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. So, it's important for you to understand that hot and cold were appealing. They were useful, they're useful temperatures when it comes to consuming a beverage. For instance, I, I'm not a cold brew coffee guy. Knock yourself out if you like cold brew coffee, it's okay. I still love you, you can still be in the church. 
I'm a hot coffee guy, but I will tell you there's something that I dislike more than cold brew coffee. It's hot coffee that's not hot or cold coffee that's not cold. That's called disgusting coffee and you should never drink that. I go to a coffee shop, I want my coffee hot or my coffee cold, but lukewarm, I don't want that. It's gross. Spit it out and be biblical. (laughs) It would appear, though, that this church thought they were hot or cold. And looking at the rest of the text, it would seem that they were guilty of self-sufficiency. Look at chapter three and verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Now, hold on a second, do you think they actually said this? Of course not. I'm not gonna come into church, how you doing? Awesome, I'm rich, I'm prospering, I need nothing. Like no human being is gonna say that. (laughs) But that's how they're living, that's the point. They don't realize that in fact they are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. The the problem here is that their assessment of their spiritual lives versus what Jesus knew was actually true, that assessment of what Jesus knew and what they thought they knew were worlds apart. It seems as though that their problem was that they were overconfident and that they were self-reliant. And in the same way that the letter to the church at Ephesus says that they have left their first love, so too when people come to Christ, initially they are filled with a sense of Jesus' reliance, not self-reliance. And in the same way that I think that the church at Ephesus and the letter to it is uniquely applicable for us, so all these letters are applicable, but I think this is another one that is uniquely applicable, and I'm sure that you can think why, but let me help you. As a large church in one of the wealthiest areas of the country, with decades of ministry impact, self-sufficiency and self-reliance needs to be something we keep our eye on. As a pastor in my 50s, 51, 51. (laughs) This is something I have to keep my eye on. When I was young and inexperienced, when the church had no money, I remember a leader telling me, Mark, get used to unlimited ministry problems and limited financial resources. And I was like, praise God. I mean, I was like, it's so discouraging. But when you lack money or resources or experience, you live on dependency. You get on your face and you say, I don't know what to do, Jesus, I need you to help me. I don't know where this help is gonna come from. I've never seen this problem before. I don't know how to be able to address this particular issue. I have no idea. I have no training in this situation. I've got no dynamic in which I could apply previous experience. And the problem is the older you get, the more experienced you become. You're like, oh, I've seen this before and your wisdom gets misapplied in terms of self-sufficiency. Or you got a ministry problem and we think, oh, 
I know what we'll do. We'll get really smart people together and take financial resources and we're gonna solve that problem when the problem isn't people or money. It's spiritual warfare and we need the Holy Spirit or the power and the authority of the risen Christ to enter in and we, he won't do it unless we get on our face and say, we don't know what to do, we need your help. And I wonder how often Jesus is waiting in heaven and if he could say to us, all you had to do was ask. What a tragedy to be desperate and not really know it. You ever had that before that you're, you're sick or you're ill and you become so accustomed to feeling badly that you didn't know how badly you felt until you got better and you're like, wow, I had no idea how really bad I, shape I was in. This is what this church is like. But notice Jesus' call to repentance. It's directly linked to his ability to provide for them. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, we could unpack what each of those things mean, but what I want you to notice is where do they get those things from? He says, I counsel to you, I counsel you rather to buy from me, me, gold refined by fire. And then look at verse 19. Notice the centrality of Jesus. Those I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's highlighting here not just what they need, he's highlighting the centrality of Jesus to their need. So don't get hung up on ISAV and garments and wealth. You need to understand that what's happening here is Jesus is saying to this church, this is supposed to be about me. If you don't believe me, look at Revelation 3.20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Just imagine that you're a church and you're hearing from Jesus. I'm on the outside. I got locked out of my church. He has the keys to the kingdom and he's outside of the church and he's knocking. What do you do when people knock? You wonder who's there? That's the point. <laughs> who's outside the door of the church? It's Jesus. And notice the invitation, it's so generous and gracious. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. It's an invitation to fellowship and intimacy. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We will share in the very victory that is in Jesus. So what is the message to this church? Here is the church at Laodicea who is resource rich and yet desperately poor. They weren't just lukewarm about spiritual things. Listen very carefully. They were lukewarm about Jesus. And yet here is Jesus standing at the door, knocking, inviting them to change. And so all of these letters end the same way. Let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. 
So as we draw this section of Revelation to close, and as we think about Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, but all the churches, let me just suggest a few things for us to learn. Beloved, I want you to understand and be reminded our church, College Park Church, has a context, has a history, has a mission, and God calls us to be faithful in our generation. You need to have heard that in these letters. If Jesus were to write a letter to our church, I'm sure there'd be many things for him to commend, things for Jesus to look at our church and say, well done. And yet, like every church in the Bible and in present-day reality, ours is not a perfect church. There are many ways in which we need to grow. It's important to be reminded that we are just one expression of the body of Christ, that we ought to celebrate the work of God around the city and around the world, knowing that Jesus is building his church. And it seems to me that this mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus might invite some of us to consider how much our love for Jesus is really behind what we're actually doing. Where might we need to invite Jesus back into the mix of our lives and our ministry? In what ways is Jesus even today knocking at the door of College Park Church and saying, this is awesome, this is amazing, but I'm out. Invite me in and see what I can do. Where is it in your life where your first love has lost its luster or where it seems as though it's just not become about Jesus anymore? So this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It starts with seven letters. Why? Because the revelation of Jesus Christ, even into the future, happens through churches. The church isn't his backup plan, it's not plan B, it is the means by which God intends to change the world and that means it's you, it's me, being godly, being faithful, naming the name of Christ, not letting our love grow cold, not having Jesus outside of our homes, our lives, our family, our church. It's as simple and as hard as every single one of us saying, I'm gonna be faithful in my generation. I'm gonna do my best to finish strong all the way to the end. I'm gonna keep my eye on who Jesus is. It's a reminder that every Sunday is a miracle, broken people gathering together who love Jesus in a room, singing and giving and loving and listening. This is how the world changes right now with you and me saying, I know who's in charge, I know who my king is, let's go. It'll be hard, there'll be tears, it'll be difficult. We're gonna attack the enemy right where he is, but my goodness, Jesus is gonna win, so let's do it for the glory of God and for the sake of his kingdom. And at the end of the seven letters, it's just good to be reminded of this thing, that as broken as the church is, there's still a lot of good. And Jesus still loves the church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of Jesus Christ says for the churches. Oh Lord Jesus, this little assembly of College Park Church is your church. She belongs to you, individual people made up of broken spirits, broken constitutions, broken hearts are loved by you and even today you invite us to renewal, 
You invite us to repentance. You invite us to reopen the door to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So even now, would you do that, we pray, in our lives and in our church on this Sunday so that we can be faithful in the generation to which you've called us. Oh Lord, reach us, we pray, in the places of our hearts that only you can get to. Restore, we pray, oh God, the joy of our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.